I actually tell people you really need to start thinking about going to sleep much earlier than like right before you put your head in the pillow. So, um, having an evening routine is pretty important and very few people do it properly because it's just not taught, you know, I mean, it is taught in some ways, right? Like when you're, um, when you're a kid, your parents like kind of make you have an evening, evening routine, but then when you, you know, essentially grow up, you kind of forget it and then you have to relearn it, right? You have to relearn to like tuck yourself back into bed. Welcome back Neurohacker community. This is Jacqueline Loera, and I am the producer of the Collective Insights podcast. I'm popping in today to say thank you for listening to our show. We have a very special episode today with our first three times return guest, Dr. Molly Malouf, for a discussion with our director of product development, Dr. Greg Kelly. Dr. Molly is a really brilliant doctor whose goal is to extend the human health span through medical technology, scientific wellness, and educational media. Their conversation today is all about the habits that support good sleep and the importance of creating a really solid evening routine. They also dive into the science behind the formulation of our product, Qualia Night. Stay tuned all the way to the end for a coupon code we're offering just for our podcast listeners as a way to express our gratitude to you for tuning in. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Dr. Molly and Dr. Greg. So this is Dr. Greg Kelly, Director of Product Development at Neurohacker Collective, and we're really lucky to have Dr. Molly Malouf with us today. I get um, an opportunity to be in this really smart person's WhatsApp group on anti-aging with Dr. Molly and see her great contributions. And her and I have done a couple of collective insight um, times together. So I'm really looking forward to sharing Dr. Molly with you today. We're gonna talk about evening rituals and sleep biohacks and other cool things so that you'll better understand both how sleep works and how to have a better quality night's sleep. So with that, Dr. Molly, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. I've really loved every podcast that we've done together. So um, you guys just have such amazing products and the research that goes into them is so unbelievable. Like I always learn about new ingredients through you guys. And I know that you guys have a whole team of, of researchers. And I think that's what it really takes to bring these new products to market is really have people who can dig deep into really the fundamentals of the problems that you're trying to solve with the ingredients and the supplements that you've created. And sleep is something that affects, sleep issues really affect so many people. And I was at a dinner um, you know, last week in San Francisco and man, about half the table was like, I am not sleeping well and I'm really struggling and I've never had sleep problems before. And the first thing I said to them was, well, this is a particularly hard year for, for people sleeping because really we're under so much stress and stress during the daytime plays a huge role in sleep problems at night. And so I told them, look, like the reason why your body's waking you up in the middle of the night is because it thinks that it's in danger. And so one of the, one of the first things I tell anybody who's trying to optimize their sleep is you got to get a handle on your stress and you have to get a handle on what's, what are your sources of stress, right? Because this is part of why people suffer at night is they, they can't turn off and their, and their bodies also um, feel like they're, there's, you know, unsafety. And so they, they wake up and their bodies are trying to protect them. Their bodies are trying to be extra vigilant because in primitive times, being extra vigilant would have saved your life in the midst of potential danger. So, you know, the differences of the danger that we have now are things like, you know, the stress of 
uncertain politics, the stress of, you know, pandemics, the stress of, um, you know, the financial systems being, you know, all crazy. And so um, the problem with a lot of people's sleep is actually their daytime stress. One of the things when I used to work more directly with people for sleep, that I would often try to hammer home as a point is how you start your day is going to make an outsized impact on how you end your day. So I know for me, the like two tips I would always give people for starting their day is we want to get some kind of protein early in the day with breakfast. Mm -hmm. So just a -hmm. a starchy carb breakfast, not ideal if you're struggling with sleep. Um, It doesn't have to be a lot of protein, but something. And that's because tryptophan, which is in in most protein containing foods, is really important at the beginning of the day. And the other thing is morning bright light. So again, it doesn't have to be a lot, but ideally if you could even get outside for a 10 minute walk and get oriented to that morning light, that that actually sets our circadian system, it anchors it in the beginning, Mm. beginning of the day. And the ripple effect of that is the circadian system at the end of the day tends to perform better. So do you have any other um, morning tips? I mean, I think we should throw out daylight savings time personally. I think it's out of date. I think it's just so silly and it causes so many people to have seasonal affective disorder. But um, yeah, I I personally get seasonally affected. So if I don't get light in the morning, I just feel my mood is, is, you know, way, way lower. So a lot of people aren't getting sunlight because it's winter time now. So light boxes are really good options. Um, There's actually some websites that you can check your chronotype. And a lot of people don't even know if they're like what their morning, if they're like a morning type or eveningness type. And that does make a difference in, in terms of like, <laughs> you know, how do you, what are, what do you, when do you get the, when do you feel the best? Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a lion. It, like Dr. Bryce's work. Oh yeah. Know, yeah. Um, power of when. So I, yeah. I passed out as a lion. I think in my, that I used to be a, a bear, which, so like for the audience, I'll just, yeah, sure. Justice, but I'll just give quickly his four chronotypes. So lions would be people that naturally wake early, ready to go, hard chargers. Mm-hmm. Um, no, definitely morning people. Bears yeah. would be the more normal distribution that the half of adults. Um, the wolves are people that would be your classic night owls and do well. And then dolphins are people that typically, similar to what you mentioned with the hyperarousal, their brains almost are constantly scanning the environment for safety and other things. So they tend to be your classic insomniac. So that would be his. Oh, interesting. Chronotypes. Um, in a lot of chronotype research, they use birds. So, you know, night yeah. owls, morning larks. Um, that makes sense. To, to change the archetypes a little bit. But we you know, tend to yeah. into these, but they're not something that's set in stone for our entire life. Right. I used to be a total night owl. But I think a lot of it was bad habits around sleep and just like typically what I see is people go to college and they just drop into these terrible habits because they're going out late in the weekends they're sleeping in and then they go and they study late and they're in light time. I mean, there's computers in their face till late at night. And so before they know it, they're, they're always, they're like night shifted. But when I was, um, when I first started working for myself in, um, gosh, I think it was 2012 or so. I remember fixing my sleep was like a big priority and I started letting myself go to bed earlier and waking up later and, um, or waking up at at like earlier in the morning and started. So I became a, over the years, I've actually become a morning person where like I typically get up around six 30. Um, I feel really good in the morning 
And I like to go to bed early. I like to go to bed at like 9.30 or 10. It's to me like sleep right now is such a luxury. And I, anybody who's been under a lot of stress needs a little bit more sleep than they realize. Um, but yeah, alongside those, like, along, like so typically like stress is, is a big source of a lot of people's sleep dysfunction. And to me, that's, that makes sense in terms of why you guys included things like holy basil and shizandra as well. Like these are, I would say these are my top three adaptogens that I prescribe my patients because they just work. Like, you know, they, they are so consistently helpful for, for getting people to feel more balanced in terms of their, their stress system that, um, it was really nice to see that you guys had those. Um, and also things like magnesium, which, you know, a lot of people are deficient in. And then I'm guessing you picked like, um, B6 for the production of melatonin because of that, that tryptophan and, 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 and serotonergic system. Yeah. B6 is invariably for any neurotransmitters we're trying to make, they're B6 dependent enzymes. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. So it, that it makes sense. goes really well with magnesium as a combo in, you know, neurotransmitter support. So, um, but, so we yeah. mentioned the hyperarousal again. So before we go sure. too much further, I want to give our audience just a quick layout of hyperarousal. So hyperarousal yeah. simply means that aspects of our, our brain or our physiology or our emotional state are a little bit on alert, like more aroused than they should be. And mm -hmm. when we have that going into the evening hours, it can really make it difficult to fall asleep and get good quality sleep. So what you would classically see is a lot of people that are challenged with sleep and yeah. have significant long lasting challenges would have some aspect of hyperarousal. So they tend to go hand in hand. Yeah. And uh, as Dr. Molly mentioned, when we were designing Qualia Life, hyperarousal was a big focus. Yeah. And, um, and then you've included things like, like L-theanine, which, you know, is a pretty, like, it's one of those, it's one of those like supplements that most people can really feel. Like when I have L-theanine, I'm like, oh, wow, I generally feel just more relaxed. I just feel better. And, um, do you want to talk a little bit about L-theanine? Like, it seems like it's in everything these days, but you know, it, it just seems to make me feel so calm. Like, do you know why that is? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the early studies on it had to do with um, shifting our brain into like a more mm. calm state, so supporting mm. alpha brain waves. So That's cool. it has a really good um, stress. Um, it for sure has interactions with the GABA system, which is our like our braking system for the brain. Right. That's what starts to s slow it down and make it so that that our brain's not as driven. And yeah. then to um, a much less known action is that it actually is really supportive of the immune system. It does a super oh. on boosting a subset of T cells called gamma delta cells. And the, the best way for our audience to think of those is our immune system's capable of becoming fitter and smarter. And when challenged by certain compounds, some immune cells literally get bigger, stronger, and faster. Mm -hmm. And L-theanine happens to be one of the main things that does that for gamma delta T cells. So, you know, that's not why it was per se in night, but it's a nice positive side effect that you're getting immune support as well. So one thing I wanted to do also before we move too far is I'm sure like me. So in, we already mentioned you were a night owl when you were in college. I was yeah. too. I was through the Navy, even through most of my naturopathic degree. So, you know, until my say early thirties, for sure I was a night owl. But I also, because of circumstances, had periods where I was chronically sleep deprived. Oh, so me too. I had a problem falling asleep or staying asleep, but my circumstances 
did not allow for nearly as much as my body would need to thrive. Yeah. Part of that was in the Navy, being an officer, being out at sea, rotating shift work. Yeah. Part was when I was in naturopathic school and the long, crazy hours then. Yeah. Part was taking a job at one point during naturopathic school to, to pay for some extra. Right. Yeah. Et cetera. And working three nights a week from eight in the night until eight in the morning and still having to, you know, go to class and do um, clinical shifts and things like that. So, so I, I lump all that in as sleep neglect, right? There's not a, a problem falling asleep. Sleep's just being neglected either because of yeah. circumstances or yeah. because we're not aware that sleep should be like you said, like you look forward to sleep. So well, tell a little bit about your sleep adventures. I mean, the reality, reality is, is that I had terrible sleep when I was, I mean, I was one of those kids who just like, oh man, if I could just like not sleep, I would be, I would be so much, so much more productive. And I would just like sacrifice sleep for what I called productivity. You know, like you think you're actually getting more work done, but in fact, you're actually damaging your, your performance. (laughs) And I was in med school and I was just like, pretty burned out. It was about halfway through med school. I was like, something's not working. And I went to a psychologist and I was like, I think I'm depressed. And he's like, no, you're not. I'm like, but it feels like I'm so sad all the time. And I'm always anxious and I don't know what's wrong with me. And he's like, you're a stressed out medical student. You're not even taking care of yourself. Like, and we went through all my lifestyle and he's like, obviously you don't feel good. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is on me. And so the, the real problem with one of the, with, with the healthcare system is a lot of doctors don't ask people about lifestyle. And this was a psychologist who was actually pretty bright. And he was like, look, let's talk about your lifestyle. And I wasn't sleeping normal hours. I was studying way too late. I was drinking way too much caffeine and I was um, not exercising enough. And I was sedentary from my desk. And so I just didn't feel good like at all. And I was this medical student trying to study disease and becoming kind of diseased, you know, like, a doctor told me I, I had, you know, ADD. And so I started taking stimulants and, oh my God, I was such a disaster. <laughs> Honestly, I was like, I'm surprised I got through it. <laughs> and, um, and I, so I, I made some changes. I started sleeping normal hours. I stopped drinking all that espresso and I started meditating and doing yoga. And I, I really started spending more time in self-care and I was like, really getting better grades. And I, and everybody just was like, Whoa, this is really weird. You're like doing really amazing. And then I ended up getting like a, a 99th percentile on my second board exam, which was way better than my first board exam because I was entirely sleep deprived, could not sleep. I used to have terrible test anxiety and couldn't sleep before my first board exam. And I got an average and I was like, that is so not my performance. Like this is lame. I'm way better. I'm way smarter than that. And so by the time I took my second board exam, I had fixed my sleep and my performance was like, you know, top percentile. So everybody was kind of like, what did you do? Did you cheat? I'm like, no, I actually just changed my lifestyle. I started sleeping. I started exercising. I started eating normal mealtimes. I stopped drinking so much coffee and, um, and I did better. And I think a lot of, one of the things that's really motivated me to be a doctor dedicated to health instead of just disease only is just knowing that if you sleep better, if you actually get better quality sleep, if you, if you take care of yourself, if you're not constantly relying on caffeine to, you know, give your body the impression it's got wakefulness, even though it's really just suppressing the adenosine drive by blocking the adenosine receptors. If you really just like stop doing the things that your body, like kind of like what, what, we're, what we're doing wrong, unfortunately, with our society is we're kind of using our bodies. We're kind of exploiting them as 
as a means to, for productivity. And we're kind of like saying, well, you know, it's just a body. It just, it's here to do work. And we're, and we're here to just like eke every single inch of productivity out of this device. But that's led to burnout and breakdown. And frankly, a lot of people are getting really sick with COVID because their bodies are not prepared for the disease. So yeah, for me, like, you know, getting sleep right, frankly, was like a huge, huge, huge performance enhancement experience. And it's so funny to me because like, I thought sleep was something you had to sacrifice for better performance. And now I know that sleep is literally the path to better performance. And so because it was one of the first things that I optimized, I stopped thinking about it and I stopped caring about it because it was like, it was so dialed that like, wow, it was just so, it was just something that I just do. But now I'm starting to like, now, I mean, for years, it's still always been a big part of my, my sort of worldview on health, you know, like sleep plus exercise plus, you know, proper nutrition divided by stress is obviously wellness. And it's really how we create more bioenergetic capacity. Now, I haven't really proved that necessarily with science, but I've seen it clinically really make a difference. If your sleep isn't good, you'll never fully recover. You'll never, you'll always have issues with cortisol regulation. Your metabolism will never be perfect. You won't have the energy to exercise. In fact, you're more likely to get injured if you exercise sleep deprived. So it's just, it's just so fundamental to health that we must pay attention to it if we want to live as long as possible without disease. Well, and I, I think, so I go back to, you know, like my time in the Navy where um, on a good week out at sea, I would maybe get, you know, get allowed four hours of sleep, right? So that was, that was your window to sleep. And you were still going to likely be woken up by sailors because they needed your attention for something. Um, and I remember, so when I was in, um, at one point I was in practice in Connecticut, lived right by Yale in New Haven, taught um, naturopathic students at the University of Bridgeport as part of their, their degree. And so one of the things I remember, just this was in a Starbucks, literally right across from the, the main gate at Yale. And I knew some nurses just to, you know, like to have tea coffee with just from seeing them there. And they knew some of the, the doctors or the, the medical students. And I remembered them essentially saying that they'd been told during residency to expect that most of them would gain weight mm. and that, you know, maybe 10% wouldn't, but that most would gain significant weight. And at the time it fascinated me because they hadn't made the connection. It was because of the sleep deprivation, right? They'd made the connection. This, this stressful situation was going to, but it, like now we know that in a very real sense, we're in, in a sense, like hibernatory animals. Like if we don't get enough sleep over the next you know, month, six months, mm -hmm. year or longer, I believe there's a part of our brain that literally thinks some point, Greg's gonna pay this sleep back. So I better store extra fat and energy for when he hibernates. And oh, so wow. that's, my, that's my story about sleep. Now, yeah. I think we all have stories that help us. And so with that story in that time, you know, when I was, post the Navy, post naturopathic school, finally dawned on me how important sleep was. So this was about, I think it was after work, reading T.S. Wiley's book, um, Lights Out. So sometime mm -hmm. 2000-ish, that I literally one winter in New Haven decided that I was gonna hibernate. So my, you know, my start was okay, it was winter, so it was pretty easy. Yeah. But that, you know, come six, seven at night, I was gonna just turn off the lights and see if I could go to sleep. And, my recollection, and now this is 20 years ago, 
was yeah. that for the first 10 days to two weeks, I, I slept close to 12 hours a night. Wow. And then slowly like 11. And then, you know, by like three, four weeks in, I was back to sleeping closer to like my normal eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Before. And my hands were always cold. I, I was a yeah. massage therapist at one point between the Navy and naturopathic school. Yeah. I used to four or five. Like I would, you know, my hands would be like these ice. Yeah, ice I used to have the same problem, by the way. Yeah. And so in that winter, all of a sudden, my hands became warm for the first time mm. that I could mm. remember in my adult life. Yeah. And these other things that also kind of fell in place. And so that like idea of hibernating, I, I think, so my baseline story is if Greg can sleep, Greg needs sleep. Yeah. And what I often saw when I would coach a, a patient or a friend to sleep more is their initial response was quite often they felt more tired than normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I have my story about why that would be, but do you have any insight why that might be? About, but can you repeat the question real, fat, real yeah, fast? So when, when someone that's really sleep deprived. Oh yeah, yeah. More, it's not unusual that they would experience being more tired than normal. Yeah. Now, my story is if you can sleep, you need sleep. So how do you, so I know how I make sense of those two, but I was wondering if you might. Well, typically when I see someone who's really sleep deprived, I usually have them wear a, a wearable to see what really, I think wearables do two, two really good things for sleep. They do sleep amount, like how, what's the total amount of sleep that you're in, you're in bed and they let you know the latency. So how quickly did you fall asleep? I don't think they're really good for REM or for um, deep sleep. Like I get totally opposite numbers on whoop versus the aura ring. So like, I'm really not sure who to trust. So I don't really totally believe um, those devices really know how to measure REM or deep sleep. I think you have to wear that on your head. But I do think that like when someone's sleep deprived, they, their latency is like, boom, they'll go right to bed. So um, alternatively, there's people who just suffer from insomnia. So they just don't fall asleep properly. Yeah, that's the um, one tired, right? Right. But, um, but to me, um, you know, chronic sleep deprivation, you know, there's pretty good evidence that you do need to make it up at some point, right? Like your body accumulates a sleep debt and the biggest, I mean, I, th I think the biggest thing that, that I, it sounds like what you went through, what I would interpret that as is, you know, your body was under a lot of chronic stress, clearly, like by the way that you were living your life and by giving yourself the, the heat, the time to heal through sleep, which is what you needed you were able to re-regulate the autonomic nervous system, right? Which needed far more parasympathetic activation than it was probably getting. And this is really problematic for the majority of Americans right now. It's like everyone's in fight or flight 24 seven. They're going to bed working, they're waking up on their phones, they're looking at their Gmail, they're, they're like nonstop all day long. And then they don't take breaks throughout the day. They're sitting all day long. And then, you know, before you know it, they just can't turn off. They just have this internal dialogue that they can't turn off. And um, oftentimes it's anxiety related. The reality is, is that chronic stress just breaks the body in different ways. Um, but this hyper arousal, you sort of like phenotype of can't turn off, can't relax. It's really an autonomic nervous system disruption. And that, that certainly relates back to cortisol dysregulation, catecholamine excess, you know, not just like not living a lifestyle of, of enough of enough um, rest and digest. You often see gut dysfunction in these individuals. I know I had some gut dysfunction this year because of the amount of stress that I put myself under. Um, we really do need to balance the fight or flight with the rest and digest. And we often don't do that. 
And so we don't do that because frankly, I didn't do that for the majority of my twenties while I was in med school and residency and college. And, you know, there's just so much, I mean, I just remember the majority of my youthful years, I'm still pretty young, right? I'm 36, but since high school to college, to medical school, to residency, it was just like incredible amounts of work and then burnout, incredible amounts of work and then burnout. And just like, I would collapse on vacation with my family. I would literally just sleep the entire week. I would be on the couch like a, like a slug because I couldn't, I just couldn't move. And inevitably I got sick that week, right? Because my immune system was finally given the space to actually react. So um, yeah, it was super interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've seen that pattern of getting sick on vacation quite frequently actually. With yep. years. Mm -hmm. And you know, so my story is, um, so what you were just describing, I think of as like the, the, the sprint, the mad dash, right? So a lot yeah. of, I've actually been in some job situations for startups where it was just one sprint after another. Yeah. It was just an endless sprint, right? <laughs> so where now I'm much more like, a, I think of myself as a grinder. I was um, yeah. this way when I was younger, but like even by the time I did my master's degree, um, pre being a, a naturopath, I was one of those people I would start on my term paper week two and have it done. Oh, right? wow. Before school ended, right? I would just do a little every day, just grind away at it. And so I like that, you know, like the turtle approach to things. I'm not, you know, I, like, don't make me sprint repeatedly. But oh, think, yeah. No, it's taken, I mean, it's taken me years to develop the, the brain and lifestyle habits to actually get my work done on time and early, to get to meetings on time and early, to like, just be, I just have to basically get everything ahead to done ahead of schedule. I set early deadlines for myself so that I don't end up procrastinating. That's a huge, hugely problematic bad habit a lot of people have. Yeah, um, I, I had it when I was younger, and um, I think something about being in the Navy helped me. Yeah, discipline. My story is that from a mind-body perspective, at least, mm -hmm. our, our being is going to try to hold it together. And when oh, there's yeah. a where it finally feels like, okay, I don't have to, I can just relax, then that's when, you know, sometimes then that minor sickness, that it's been somehow... Right. So, and then I had asked about the people that when sleeping more, all of a sudden would give me feedback. Hey, Dr. Greg, I'm feeling even more tired. There's something wrong. Yeah. So again, that's my story is that when that part realizes, oh, like sleep's all of a sudden going to be a priority. I can start to pull out of the closet all this accumulated sleep debt and start paying it back. Now you experience for the first time, maybe in a while, how tired you are, where before your oh, yeah. energy was essentially combating that. And so yeah. I would tend to look at it as if someone said, Dr. Greg, when I started sleeping more, I felt even more tired as someone that really needs extra sleep. Like they're, they probably have a big accumulated debt that they need to pay back like I would have had. Um, yep. for the Navy and naturopathic school. So totally. those two things, there was a, a couple other things you've mentioned that sure. I want to give some attention to. So you mentioned adenosine and oh, yeah. really in passing, I do want to make sure our audience understands that. So that's called the homeostatic sleep drive. Adenosine is right. a molecule in that. And I'll turn it over to you just to give a, a quick you know, what you know of that system. Okay. So like as a lifelong coffee drinker since sixth grade, I recently realized that coffee was no longer doing me any favors with my health. Um, I'd become estrogen dominant this year for the first time. I had developed, um, you know, some 
my, my HPA, my happy limit pituitary adrenal axis was a little thrown off by the amount of stress that I've been under for the last couple of years. And so it was a pretty strong signal that when I was drinking like three cups of coffee, I would start feeling my kidneys. I would be like, Oh crap. I can feel literally the pain in my back. Like Chinese medicine would tell you that you're kind of, you too, you're too young energy. You need a little bit more yin. And, um, you know, it's funny because like it only took the pandemic and like still overworking myself a little bit during this pandemic to be like, oh yeah, like maybe this would be a time for coasting a little bit. But instead of this year, I just totally, totally poured myself into so many projects. So as I've been trying to, um, you know, cut back on coffee, I've been trying to understand the first principles of how coffee works in the body. So like, what's the underlying mechanisms? Like how, what is the sort of reason why coffee makes us feel awake? And I discovered that coffee essentially is a, um, it, it inhibits the, it basically binds to the same receptor as adenosine. And now when adenosine binds over time, it builds up throughout the day and, and it'll make us feel sleepier. But when we block that, 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 that receptor site with caffeine, we just stay more, we, we get the sensation that we're awake. It just gives us the sensation of wakefulness. So it's blocking the wakefulness inhibition, right? So it's, it's kind of hard to explain that way, but essentially it's like if it's blocking adenosine's ability to bind. So yeah. that wakefulness, that, 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 that's, it suppresses the, the, the tiredness that we would get throughout the day from more adenosine building up. Yeah, the way I think of it, and so I'm going to like oversimplify it to the point that this is probably you know, wrong, but it's, it's more understandable. So more understandable for me. So it's called the homeostatic sleep drive, but I think of it yeah. as accounting system. So the general sense is that think of sleep like an account, like a financial mm -hmm. account. Yeah. An account that can never run in the black. So we can never like um, profit. We can only create a debt. So that's often referred to as sleep debt. And so from the minute we wake in the morning, we start to like accumulate that debt. And that's what adenosine does. As it builds up, it's essentially the signal in our brain that we're going deeper into the bed. Mm -hmm. And then ideally when we go to sleep, we would pay back that accounting and wake up, the books would be back balanced. So adenosine is the key molecule in that sleep accounting system. And as you mentioned, when we take anything with a lot of caffeine, so coffee obviously being a common example, we're essentially putting a little bit of um, errors into the bookkeeping system for lack of a better way to describe it. And especially mm -hmm. if we start to drink a lot of caffeine late in the day or in the evening, we're going to for sure throw a monkey wrench in that system. Oh yeah. I mean, I, it, and a lot of this has to do with different genetic, um, you know, different genetic markers. So like there's obviously the caffeine detoxification enzyme, I think it's CYP12A or something. I might be wrong on that number, but basically it's if you're a fast or slow metabolizer. So like I'm a fast metabolizer of caffeine, but I still do not feel well when I drink too much coffee late in the day. Now, if you're a slow metabolizer, if you have any caffeine, it tends to last a lot longer in the system. So what I've been reading about as people go off of coffee, one of the things that most people notice is just massive improvement in sleep. And so I'm gonna be you know, doing a full detox soon when I have a little bit of space from work to do that this winter. I'm very nervous about it, but I'm also excited because it's almost like I'm giving my body the ability to fully rest for the first time in a long time. And I think everybody could 
probably benefit from doing this um, a few times a year. Actually, Daniel Schmachterberger told me personally that he felt that people should do a, um, a, you know, caffeine detox a few times a year just to reset the adenosine systems in the brain and mm -hmm. enable the brain to start, you know, regulating properly. So what do you think of that? Yeah, Daniel still, last time I spoke with him, he still advocated that. So, you know, we yeah. even advocate that for our product mind that has caffeine that people take um, every quarter or so, at least a week to 10 days or two weeks off to just give the adenosine system a, a break. So um, it's not like a hard and fast rule, but it's, you know, certainly one that I, I think um, is an advantage to integrate in. The other thing, when you're speaking about this um, on Audible, one of the books for Audible members was probably this time last year that came out was Michael Pollan on caffeine. Oh yeah. It's not like yeah. a released. It was just an Audible project and, and it was brilliant. Um, and I'm so going to have to listen to that. He actually went off caffeine to write this, you know, mini book on caffeine. And it's, um, and one of the things he found is that for him, Caffeine actually helped him be more productive to, you know, be motivated. To oh, write. it's definitely in a performance enhancement enhancement drug. Why why does it make you why, why does it make you more productive? Because it helps. It actually affects the dopaminergic system. It plays it plays a role in in that and and actually modulating the dopaminergic system, which we know makes us more motivated. Um, it also releases catecholamines, right? Just like amphetamines modulate the dopaminergic system and release catecholamines, catecholamines make you move. They get you to act. So it's like focus and motivation leads to performance, right? Like this is part of the reason why I personally have lived most of my life packing my schedule with so many things that I'm under a chronic level of stress <laughs> so that I can get my own body to produce dopamine and catecholamines. I wouldn't recommend it, but I would definitely, I mean, I'm, I've, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm definitely in the first time in my life, like really, really approaching performance from a place of balance rather than from a place of um, exploiting my body for productivity. And I think that we have to shift the wellness industry towards a new model because, you know, a lot of the biohackers that I know, a lot of the like health leaders that I know, everybody's taking stimulants. Everybody's kind of addicted to their, um, their source of stimulation in, in order in order to pump out more work. And it's funny because if you ask, like, there's this great book on um, this woman who wrote a book on, uh, on, you know, the five regrets of the dying. And she was like a palliative care nurse. And she basically discovered that like one of the main regrets of most people is that they wish they would have worked less. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm all for performance and I'm certainly an ambitious young lady, but I, really think that we'd all benefit from more balance, at least between like our sleep and our wake, our wakefulness and our sleep cycles, our circadian rhythms, our stress and our, our rest. Like I think the whole country would benefit from a better, from better balance. Yeah. And I, I think, so um, this goes back to another Navy story, but when I was um, in the Navy, I was active duty from 84 through 89. And I, think it was in the fall of 86, my XO. So he would be the second in command of the ship just under the captain mm -hmm. was um, diagnosed with HIV. And back oh. then that was horrible news, right? Like you didn't yeah. have long after that diagnosis in 86. So um, I just remember visiting him at the, Hawaii, um, the hospital. This was in um, Hawaii near Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And I w would have said at the time I was his favorite officer. 
um, in part because I was pretty fit. So I think he, I reminded him of a younger version of him. But he was late 30s, newly married. My recollection is he had a, a newborn, was a, a maybe a year, year and a half old infant. And basically, like, he knew the end was near. And he just said, Greg, promise me that when it comes your time, you'll do differently. You will we'll have done differently. As I lie here, I feel like I've done the right thing, as I understood it, right? I got good grades, worked hard to advance in my career. And I feel like, in a real sense, I've never lived. So I don't mm -hmm. know what that's going to mean for you. But when you get yeah. here, I want you to feel like you've lived. Oh, so oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I think the difference between me and the vast majority of people that I know is... I have lived multiple lifetimes and I'm only 36. <laughs> like the last 10 years, when I left the mainstream medical healthcare system and I started working for myself, I truly started living. I like truly started doing things on my own terms. I started to, I mean, I was supporting myself, right? Like I had full autonomy and I'm not necessarily recommending everyone drop out of their industries or leave their corporate jobs or leave the hospital that they're working in. But I, I get a, I get an email at least every week from some student or some resident or some doctor who's like, how do I do what you do? How do I be the kind of doctor that you are? And I'm like, well, you're going to have to sign up for a very different type of lifestyle than you're used to because you have to be in charge of your existence. And by being autonomous and being a char in charge of my own life, I've gotten to travel the world. I've been to 18 countries. I've been to all sorts of cool conferences. I've met incredible entrepreneurs. I mean, I've met the most amazing patients. I've had patients that have accomplished enormous feats. Um, and I've, I've been able to live in some of the coolest cities in the world. So like, I mean, I believe that fortune favors the bold, um, but I don't recommend, um, doing what I did unless you are willing to take a major risks and, um, and, you know, I think part of it's luck, but also part of it is seeing other doctors like me do things differently that gives people inspiration. Um, you know, like I, I think that life should be, ba I, I think most people would benefit if they balanced their life with quarterly vacations and did something where they completely went off of work. They just completely disconnected from work and they really went out in the world and did something exciting and learned a new skill. Um, I'm very, 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 very fortunate. I admit that like, it's, it's almost like, I, I feel like I'm bragging saying this, but I've even gotten to go on vacations for my job as I, I teach um, with different groups. So I've taught, um, I'm about to teach with Canyon Ranch this year at Woodside in California. I've taught with this group called Chosen Experiences. They were to take you on these incredible vacations where I basically am like the, I'm like teaching people how to optimize their health while we're at these like spectacular locations. So like, I do think that my generation, at least my friends and my friend group that I've, that I've become friends with, like, these are the people that are frankly thriving in the midst of this pandemic. Like all my friends left America and they went to Puerto Rico, they went to Costa Rica, they went to Hawaii, they went to Mexico and they're like having a great existence because they really value living instead of just working. So I think there's definitely an import. I mean, I think you can, I think you can work really, really hard, but you can also have balance in your life. And I think we're, I think the, the millennial generation in particular um, has shifted their desire for things towards really wanting experiences. Um, and part of that might be just a product of the fact that it's hard to buy a house when you're young, you know, like it's becoming really, I mean, this is a whole nother discussion about societal norms and changes, but um, I think a lot of, I think there's definitely a shift in, in, in my age group and in younger people to wanting to wanting to live a little bit more and also not wait till you're retired to actually start living. It definitely is a difference in thinking for sure. Yeah. Which in that, 
you know, mid eighties timeframe, that would have been the norm, right? Like that would have been the, um, you know, the Navy retirement was yeah. age, right? Just yeah. how the military works, but still that was like, I knew a lot of people that everything was on hold till they did their 20 years. Yeah. Like, yeah that's a that's super common i think for me but i was um at the time you know felt like i was a lone wolf or like a you know salmon swimming the wrong way upstream so yeah yeah i mean and typically you have to be if you want to be different if you want to have a more vibrant life and have more experiences but um you know it's i think a lot of people just need examples of like what's possible so that they can know that life can be different almost often people often need permission like i have to pre- prescribe vacations to patients i'm like you need to go on vacation i'm literally telling you i want you to go offline and go on a vacation i want you to spend time having fun and they're like what's fun <laughs> <laughs> anyway but anyway i mean i so I, I do have a few more questions about this, um, this formula you've designed, you know, like there's some ingredients here I've never seen before. Sure, and we'll like, on that. and then I wanted to get a little bit into creating a nighttime routine and ritual. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, so first off, like, um, I think, bef- I think a lot of people, when they first notice, when they first get this, um, the supplement, they notice that you guys recommend that they take it earlier in the evening than right before bed. And I really, I, we could talk about that after the evening routine, but I think that that's something that's kind of cool because it's, I actually tell people, you really need to start thinking about going to sleep much earlier than like right before you put your head in the pillow. So um, having an evening routine is pretty important and very few people do it properly because it's just not taught, you know, I mean, it is taught in some ways, right? Like when you're, a, um, when you're a kid, your parents like kind of make you have an evening, evening routine. But then when you, you know, essentially grow up, you kind of forget it and then you have to relearn it, right? You have to relearn to like tuck yourself back into bed. So um, I tell people like turn off your, your, your screens fairly early in the evening. Please do it before 8 p.m. because you really want to give your brain the ability to start producing melatonin properly. And that's just not going to happen if you've got bright blue light in your face. And if you can't do that, then you need to get blue blockers. So either you need to wear blue blockers, you need to block your screens, exactly. Or you need to block, um, you can put blue blockers on your screens. You can get blue blocking software that can lower your screens. You can have Apple, my my Apple products actually naturally turn down the blue. Um, You know, there's there's apps like Flux, which will work for most computers. Um, And then, you know, if you're going to work in a room that has a lot of light, make sure you use darker, dimmer lights. You know, you can get yellow light bulbs. You can get red light bulbs if you want. Um, Dimmer switches are important. I'm a huge, I just hate having bright light at night in a house. Like, so, so annoying. Try not to watch a ton of TV before bed. See, so much easier said than done. But like TV would be better to watch earlier in the evening, maybe when you're cooking or like right around dinner rather than later at night. You know, reading before bed would be much better using your bed for only, you know, sleep, sex, and, um, and, you know, just resting, going to sleep. Um, and you know, like taking a bath before you go to bed, like winding down, like journaling, doing something that's not requiring a ton of brain power, like giving your brain the time to turn off. Like that's to me really important. And yet just so many people, um, do it so poorly. They eat late at night, which we know that eating late at night disrupts sleep. And so the people drink too much at night. We know that reduces REM. So um, these are just the pro tips that I give people. But like, 
there's also a ton of sleep tips I could give people. Like a lot of people don't realize that they need air quality in their room to be proper. They need proper air quality. They need to make sure that they don't, um, you know, end up with, with, you know, a lot of people don't know, don't realize that the air quality in their house is actually really not good. So that needs to be addressed too. And then for a lot of men in particular, sleep, they're too hot at night. So um, you need to make sure you're, you cool yourself off, turn the temperature down if you can. There's a company called Eight Sleep that all my investor friends are freaking out about. And it's one of those like Chili Pad 2.0 companies. Um, so like really cool off your body if you need to, if you're, if you're a hot sleeper. But yeah, just giving yourself this like wind down routine where you can turn off your brain, like, you know, gradually. But I think, um, so for me, I've, I've always been one of those people. So my aura ring shows that I fall asleep three to five minutes sleep latency. And I've, I've always been able to fall asleep really as soon as I yeah. um, intend to. Or with it, yeah. know, and I would say every once in a while, there'll be a night that's an exception, but it's definitely not my norm. So, um, so that's just not a problem for me. I don't yeah. have the problem yeah. literally watch an action movie, turn it off and be asleep five minutes later. Like do you think that... Do, sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that, like, I actually think that, like, med- medical school training and, and military training are very similar, and because you get so sleep-deprived, you, like, train yourself to just, boom, I'm going to sleep anywhere at any time, and, like, I'm so like that, by the way, if I need to sleep on a plane in an uncomfortable position, I just, tr- I just, tr- I just start sleeping, so, like, it's interesting, I think there, there might be, like, a, dis- like, a training that happens to us, because it's, I do seem to have pretty, pretty low latency and I sleep plenty every night. Now, I have um, friends where that's not the case. You know, there's something that I could watch would not allow them to fall yeah. asleep. Easily, yeah. right? So we're all a little bit different there. And, but I think in general, most of us do better. So I guess, um, you know, one time, um, a, a long time girlfriend that I was with, she couldn't watch what I could comfortably watch, but a Frasier episode would be mm-hmm. the right thing to transition her in. Yeah. You know. But, and I tend to think, and you mentioned these two words right at the beginning, safety and comfort. So when mm-hmm. I think of like, whatever the environment and the circumstances leading up to sleep, the more that they can convince our mind, body, spirit that we're mm-hmm. safe and that we're comfortable. Yeah. The more we, it's going to allow us to fall asleep and have good quality sleep because um, we've talked a little bit about vigilance and alertness with caffeine. The, if, if it's not sure that things are safe and, and comfortable, then it's going to be a little bit more vigilance. And so mm-hmm. there's a, a common thing that happens when people are on vacation or traveling for work and their first night in a hotel room, they won't get sound sleep. They'll feel mm-hmm. like they, their brain was more active. And that's, actually exactly what happens. Our brain is literally making sure that we're safe. It's not as sure about that environment. So it's not going to allow us. Yeah. Right. So exactly. The brain's going to always try to do the best given the circumstances. And my story would be if um, it's my job to make sure that I've convinced it that where I'm going to lay down for the night is safe and comfortable. And to go to the point of, reassuring it if it's my first night in a new place i'll literally self-talk and tell my brain like all right we're in a hotel the door is locked completely safe do whatever you need to do but i just want to let you know that the safety thing's covered 
I definitely feel like noise pollution is a big thing too that people overlook in cities in particular. I used to live in a neighborhood that was really loud and I never fully slept well in that neighborhood because it was just constantly sending me safety, like unsafety signals. I was like, I don't know what that sound is, you know? So I think it's really important to get proper sight, like block the light and block the sound in your room if you can, you know, um, earplugs if you need to. Just, you got to get your body to have a sense of just like minimal sort of stimulation if possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think of the brain's, you know, job one is protecting us, right? Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of brain energy in our senses. um, But while we're sleeping, our auditory system is still working really, really hard. Yeah. And planning the environment to make sure that we're safe. So you're right, like background noises can be a real tipping point for people. Um, You know, one of the other things, so when we first, we've talked a little bit about different things that happen during sleep, but one of the things that was news to me when I was um, working on the Quality Night product that came up during the research was that our brain actually makes and or puts out a huge burst of ATP right as we Mm -hmm. go into non-REM sleep. So the, Mm -hmm. the beginning stages of sleep and when you start to think about what the brain does for work done, like one of the things during non-REM sleep that occurs is that short-term memories, things that we would have experienced or learned, you know, cramming at medical school that day. Yeah. They get moved more from short-term into long-term. Right. Yeah. Beginning um, evening sleep. And there's these huge energy bursts called sleep spindles then that act to literally move that information from the front of our brain to the back of our brain or wherever it needs to be stored. And that takes a lot of energy. So I, I, I know one of the things that was important to me when we designed Qualia Night was supporting mitochondrial health because yep. need, even though we're not alert, our brain's still doing a ton of work while we're sleeping. Right. And I guess would be part of the issue, and especially with sleep as we get older, is that our brain's not making enough ATP to mm-hmm. do all the important jobs that we needed to do to get a quality night's sleep. So I, um, you know, I, I know Dave Asprey talks about mitochondria and sleep, you know, periodically on Bulletproof Radio, but I'm, um, you know, willing to bet that mitochondria play a big role in um, getting good sleep and conversely. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you look at sleep apnea patients, they often get metabolically unhealthy and there's got to be a relationship between sleep and mitochondria because we know that like just having sleep apnea can cause all sorts of things downstream i mean it's so it's so it's so complex but i definitely need to to do more research on sleep and mitochondria because i'm writing a book a lot about mitochondria and dave asprey is actually going to write the foreword so i'm stoked about it i mentioned early on i think it's super important to get some kind of protein um, early in the day. So um, as opposed mm-hmm. to just our breakfast. Um, or the other thing yeah. I've consistently seen is people that skip breakfast or do an intermittent fasting and start the eating window mm-hmm. later in the morning or in the early afternoon. The one thing that I pay attention to then is, are they craving food in the evening? Because yeah. what tends to happen is if we have food earlier in the day, it, anchors or swings appetite rhythms earlier. And if our first meal is later, it tends to cause those appetite rhythms to drift later. So if you're doing yeah. the fasting and that's not an issue, then great, it's working for you. But if you're doing it and feel like at nine, 
at night you're all of a sudden really hungry or need a snack, then that could be maybe something that would be fixed or made better by shifting food earlier in the day. You know, I actually agree with you here. In, in particular, I really have been um, doing tons of just thoughts on fasting because fasting is becoming such a fad, right? Now, fasting has been a part of like Russian healthcare for like many, many, many years. It's like a huge health intervention for people. So it's like, and fasting has been around for like since the beginning of humanity. So it's fasting is not new, but chronic stress at the level that we're experiencing really is a fairly new phenomenon the last few hundred years. And so um, I don't feel like enough people talk about how intermittent fasting and fast prolonged fasting can affect sleep significantly. Like I, I, I once did an experiment where I did every other day fasting for like a month. And when I was not eating, I was not sleeping very well. Um, now I lost a bunch of weight, obviously gained it back after I stopped the practice, but, um, but yeah, like if you're not eating, your body is in a heightened alert state and you do, and, and our eating rhythms do play a role in our circadian rhythms and our cortisol rhythms. So I always tell people it's really good to get your cortisol rhythm checked before you decide to embark on a fasting regimen, because if you are burned out or under more stress than you realize, um, fasting is going to raise your cortisol. And fasting is going to raise these counter-regulatory hormones, which can actually be problematic if you don't have proper recovery, if you don't have, if you have too much stress in existing in your lifestyle. Um, I'm all for fasting as a health intervention, but with the caveat that you have to balance it with the amount of stress that you're under. And if you put too much fasting into a body and you combine it with too much stress, you will make a person very sick. So, and women in particular also need to be very careful with how much they fast because we are super sensitive to nutrient availability because it's a signal of whether or not we can be fertile or, or not. So um, yeah, I definitely think that like people need to take into account their, their amount of stress that they're dealing with. And, and if someone's under a lot of stress, fasting is not the first thing I would recommend for them. I would recommend mastering their stress response because there's really, a, yeah. There's a study, I call it the army ranger study. I don't know what the actual name was, but basically, um, Army Rangers, any of the special forces in the military go through really um, incredibly stressful things as part of their training. So one of the things, um, so the, the crux of this paper was um, during this training, they were sleep deprived, like out in the field, mm. so exposed to the elements, so, you know, cold exposure, exercised a ton and calorie deprived, right? So that's all part of this, this training that was occurring that this paper was written on. And one of the things that led to this research was a lot of army rangers would say after army ranger training, they would become fatter than they'd ever been before it. Now these are great oh. shapes, right? And so they studied this and what they found is that yes, this is exactly what happened. Like cortisol levels went crazy, thyroid hormones went way down. They lost weight during this, right? Cause that acute yeah. stress, as soon yeah. as they, you know, being able to, you know, rest and recover and eat again, they regained what they'd lost, but yeah. just as fat. So it's, it's referred to as body fat overshoot. But I've always kept that in mind that, yeah, like stresses accumulate. So um, well-rested, you know, not exercising particularly hard, fasting's a better fit to me. Mm -hmm. Someone that already has the army rager problem going on. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I've seen fasting change people's lives, but I've also seen it, you know, dysregulate people. So, 
Yeah, I think um, like at least for my clients that have cortisol dysregulation, I just tell them, I want you to eat something in the morning, nothing crazy, a little bit of protein is good. So we agree with that for sure. And then, then, but we don't need to snack as much as we're snacking for sure. Like there's definitely this like snacking obsession in our culture. And I I do think that it leads to, it it can contribute to metabolic dysfunction if it's the wrong snack foods, like like packaged processed stuff that's not healthy. Good. And then um, light exposure was something else I mentioned. And you also have a solution, could be a light Mm -hmm. box, which are great. So for people that want to experiment with a light box, you can find them on Amazon Usually you'd put them about um, one and a half, two feet away and about 30 minutes of morning light exposure with a light box is often enough to yep. really cement and lock in your circadian rhythms. Um, yeah, I, I've got totally. like some case studies of people that had night eating syndrome. So like huge compulsion to eat most of their calories in the darkest hours that that's been improved with use of a morning light box. So don't over- Interesting. Um, the importance of light for um, yeah. things, or morning light for affecting things in the evening. Um, you know, it will vary again, maybe depending on Dr. Brace's um, chronotypes, but I know for me as a lion and most bears, it yep. would be an advantage to get outside and even do just a, a little walk around the block or like I, like my Oh routine, my gosh, absolutely coffee shop or take my bike and bike down at the coffee shop. Yeah. Um, or, I mean, morning um, exercise is fabulous. And so, um, so there, there could be, would, would, and then for me, I'm one of those, um, caffeine sensitive people. So mm. um, I think that enzyme that you mentioned is inducible. So I know some people, especially like my old Navy buddies, they could drink a pot of coffee and sleep fine, but I'm not that person. So I've learned through like, you know, um, the school of hard knocks, that my body does fine with coffee, say 11 in the morning and earlier, but as Mm -hmm. soon and after it will affect my sleep for sure. Even like coffee ice cream would affect my sleep if I had coffee ice cream. Oh yeah, totally. And and for me, the way that that works out is I have more difficulty falling asleep and then wake up much earlier than normal. So I kind of get hit on both ends of of the the sleep thing so Mm -hmm. for me while i would love to be able to have an espresso after a nice dinner it's just not worth it so i I think for a lot of people they would be more sensitive like me if they ran that experiment and paid attention so those are a few morning or daytime things to pay attention to you mentioned some really cool things for the evening um yeah but one of the things like so you know so we've talked about um TV and, you know, mm-hmm. turning that off earlier, um, dimming the lights, again, super powerful. So I remember seeing two different studies 15 years ago or so, but one had to do with eating lunch in a, a dimmer or brighter environment. And what they found was during lunch, a brighter environment led to better digestion of that meal. Oh, interesting. Looked at dimmer, bright light, but eating an evening meal. And in the evening, dimmer light led to better digestion. So lighting... You know what? That makes a lot of sense, though, if you think about it. Like, we're really not supposed to be experiencing these weird light patterns that we're experiencing in modern life, right? Like, we're not supposed to have so much LED lighting in our cities. Like, it, it literally sends signals that we're in daytime all the time. You know, our phones on our interfaces, it's daytime all the time. It's not daytime all the time. We re- I really fundamentally believe that we're supposed to live in accordance to the circadian rhythms of the earth. 
and with our body, our bodies are in alignment with those clocks. Um, we have clocks internally that are synchronized with light cycles. So when these things get thrown off, that's when our health gets, gets affected. So when I think of lighting, especially at night, it's naturalistic lighting. So yeah, yeah. Better than like a fluorescent light as an example. Yep. Even incandescent light is better than LED, even though I love LED lights. Um, at nighttime, you know, candle, I mean, candles are tricky. You don't want to burn down your house, but, um, yeah, just like dimmers, you know, just like not so much bright blue light in your face, not so many screens in your face. I mean, we are also addicted to our screens and we're zooming more than ever. So just really, really important that people understand that we need to live in accordance with these natural cycles and we don't need the, the, the blue, the blue lights really hard. It's really problematic for health. Um, and like sleep deprivation in itself is problematic for, you know, risk of dementia. So that's one of the things I tell most people is like, Hey, if you don't get your sleep in line, your, your brain isn't going to be taking out the garbage of your daytime. So it's very, very important to recognize you, your brain needs the sleep to take out the garbage, you know, through the lymphatic system. Yep. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention, and then we'll call it a day, because I think we've covered a lot, is that the three to four hours before your normal bedtime is often referred in research as the forbidden zone of sleep. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that assuming you weren't sleep deprived, you're, it actually becomes more difficult to fall asleep in that window than it yeah. would in the afternoon or early evening. And when we designed Quality Night, we really designed it as something be, to be taken at the beginning of that mm-hmm. forbidden zone. Mm-hmm. Of that three to four hours before your desired bedtime. But then, as you mentioned, that can be part of your evening ritual. And as you also mentioned, from that point on, everything that you do is starting to transition into that safety and comfort and de-stressed, the ideally physiology that we want to induce a good quality night's sleep. So what I really try to lock into personally is focus on that forbidden zone of sleep mm-hmm. and make sure as I'm starting to move deeper into that, that I'm doing things that are going to, you know, be less stimulating. Um, right. A big one is, is just not digesting super late at night. Oh, I, that's at least on my aura ring, mm-hmm. um, looking at heart rate and heart rate variability. That's the two things that make the biggest like negative impact. So you mentioned alcohol, that for sure. Oh happens. Yeah. Oh my God. My, my, my HRV after alcohol was like 20 and I was like, uh, it's supposed to be like 60 and that's not good. And I definitely feel it. I mean, I feel it for sure. I do have to say though, that like, if you've been under social isolation for many, many months and you just saw all your friends, it's okay to drink here and here and there. It's kind of worth, it's kind of worth it once in a while. (laughs) I'm not an all or none person. Right. So yeah. Yeah. um, And then, but the other thing for me, I've noticed too, would be, um, what I eat. And when I eat it, um, the bigger the meal and the later I eat it or the, you know, the closer to my normal bedtime. And like you, I'm more like, you know, 10 o'clock or so most nights, um, the more likely that my heart rate through sleep will be elevated. Um, Conversely, I did a a cycle of the fasting mimicking diet, uh, Walter Longo's, Mm -hmm. uh, probably about six weeks ago. Um, So this isn't a, a, a complete fast. This would be lower calories for three to five days. So about 40 to 50% of your normal calories. And during that fasting mimicking diet, um, those nights, my resting heart rate was about four or five beats lower. So yeah. like that seemed to like from a stress perspective, um, that getting the benefits of fasting without um, not eating completely seemed to agree with me both for quality sleep and 
my physiology during it, where um, we haven't touched on gravity blankets and I don't want to spend much time on them, but like, a lot of Neurohacker Collective is big fans of gravity blankets. They've yeah. helped a lot of people yeah. better. The one thing that I never score well on my aura ring is restlessness. It always shows orange. Mm. <laughs> Literally, I don't think it's ever been green since I've had my aura ring. Um, and and a, like, so not surprisingly, or not surprisingly to me maybe, um, or my explanation. So gravity blankets do not work well for me. I, I don't get as restful sleep subjectively. My heart rate's much higher. And I think because I'm naturally restless some, for some reason during sleep, that extra weight must prevent me from moving enough that my physiology has to work more. So yeah. bottom line is gravity blankets. I'm the unusual person that I know that they um, didn't work for. They actually seem to make my sleep work worse. And so that's the key thing I want to just leave is the final message that sleep's really complicated. There's totally. Dr. Brace's different chronotypes. They all have different needs in terms of their schedules and their, the biohacks that are going to optimize them. Um, but the key thing I just want to let our audience know is um, what works for me may not work for you. So sure. be flexible and experience. Yeah. And ultimately, a thing I do believe in is um, communicate with your body. When you do get a good night's sleep, what I do is I thank my body. I literally tell it, great job. Like, please do that again. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely take advantage of the subconscious as well, right? Right before you go to bed, that that place between sleep and wake is such an effective place for using your sleep to perform. I, I always look at sleep as a very functional place of actually doing really good, really great work. I get some of my best best ideas from sleeping really well, and waking up in the morning and being like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense, you know. Um, I also tell people to use their sleep as a reflection of their life. Typically when I, my dreams are a very, very strong reflection of how well my life is going. So, you know, when you're dreaming well and you're, and you're having, and you're waking up refreshed and, you know, things are positive, like that's a pretty good sign your, your life is going well. But when things start shifting in your dreams, then, you know, take, take note in your daily life. You may need to change something. Yep. I know. Um, I was one of those mathletes in high school. So I was good in math. And um, mm -hmm. they used to, we do, did competitions where we would go to, you know, to one of the other schools and there'd be athletes from all the schools competing. But we also did take home um, competitions. And I can remember two different times being stumped and literally waking up in the middle of the night with the answer all preformed and just writing mm -hmm. it down. So I learned back then, um, letting my brain like having something near my bed to write down things. Like my brain is going to try to do like figure things yeah. out while I'm sleeping. So either letting it know, like, all right, we got tons of information today. We were just at this really cool biohacking seminar and we learned all these new information. These couple things are the only important things that I need you to really work on tonight and make sure you move around the rest. Not so important. It's like, so to be intentional, because my brain, your brain, Molly's brain, it's, they're gonna, it's gonna try to do a lot of work while we're, we're sleeping. And mm -hmm. I believe one of the reasons that, especially the people that have the more of the classic symptoms of sleep challenges, you know, difficulty falling asleep, you know, waking at night, inability to fall back asleep, their brain's trying to do a lot of things and sending messages to the brain that 
you know, right now is not the time you need to do that. It can be part yeah. of steps along the path. For sure. So about, I want to let you end this. It's been an absolute pleasure on my end. So anything that you would like to leave as a parting message, oh, to collective insights podcast audience. I would follow me on Instagram at drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co. Or if you want to contact me, you can find me at www.drmolly.co.com. Sorry, drmolly.co. Sorry about that. co. Wonderful. Well, thank you, audience, for joining us. It's been um, great to have Dr. Molly here with me and to share some of our insights on sleep, evening rituals, and other things related to higher performance. So with that, thank you. bye. Thank you so much for staying with us all the way to the end for this conversation with Dr. Molly Malouf and Dr. Greg Kelly. Remember, this podcast is made possible by Neurohacker Collective. Use the coupon code PODCAST88 for 15% off your first order of Qualia Night or any of our other products at neurohacker.com. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and please share it with all of your friends who are interested in sleeping better and managing their stress levels. Make sure you subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.